My name is Phil Stinson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University. In this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast, we listened to an interview of me by Mike Mulcahy that originally aired live on Minnesota Public Radio on March 21st, 2018. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. So how hard is it to convict a police officer of murder or manslaughter? Philip Stinson is an associate professor of criminology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. He's been tracking court outcomes since 2005 and has created the nation's largest database of what happens to police officers charged in an on-duty killing of a civilian. Philip Stinson joins me now. Thanks for being here. Uh, let me uh, ask you the question I started with. How hard is it to convict a police officer of murder or manslaughter based on what you found? Well, not only is it hard to convict, it's hard to get an officer charged. We, we know our best estimate is that about 1,000 times each year, on-duty police officers across the country shoot and kill someone, um, and only a handful of times is an officer actually charged with murder or manslaughter. So in my research, I found that 85 officers across the country have been charged with murder or manslaughter resulting from an on-duty shooting since the beginning of 2005, so over 13 years, and only one so far this year, and that's Officer Knorr. Um, of those 85 cases, we've only seen convictions in 32 of the cases, and in a few of those cases, it was difficult to get a conviction where the state prosecution failed, and ultimately we have five cases where officers were convicted in federal court of criminal deprivation of civil rights charges. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, Mr. Freeman was correct yesterday when he said it's about 35% of the cases where an officer's charged uh, actually results in a conviction. So it's, it's difficult. Now, that being said, there's, there's a lot of variables here. There's a lot of different things going on, and it's hard to really make sense of these numbers because we are dealing with such a small sample. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you mentioned 85 charged since 2005, one convicted. How many uh, convicted of no. murder? Well, 32 were convicted, I'm sorry, yeah. only, uh, and of those 32, by the way, uh, exactly half, 16 were guilty plea and uh, 16 were jury trials. None of the officers have been convicted in a bench trial where the judge sits as the trier of fact without a jury present. Only one officer has actually been convicted of murder and had that case uh, uh, not overturned on appeal. There were several out of New Orleans, uh, the Danziger Bridge incidents after the Katrina hurricane where officers were charged with murder. But only one has actually been convicted of murder and serving time now. And that's a case out of Colorado, Rocky Ford, Colorado, where an officer um, shot and killed a man uh, that he had followed. The guy was on a skateboard. He followed him into his home, just barged into the guy's home behind him and shot the 27-year-old man in the back in the presence of the man's uh, mother. Just a strange case. And, and what you see in these cases, you actually have to have some bizarre set of facts that are just so over the top, so um, um, uh, odd, and, and you can't explain by any reasonable set of facts that ends up resulting in a conviction. That's what it literally takes in these cases uh, to get a conviction. Hmm. Well, in Minnesota, the law says that an on-duty police officer um, can use deadly force to protect themselves or their partners from apparent death or great bodily harm. Is that pretty much the law in every state? Well, the Supreme Court has laid it out in, in two cases from the 1980s. A police officer is justified in using deadly force if the officer has a reasonable apprehension of an imminent threat of death or serious bodily injury being imposed against the officer or somebody else. So here's the kicker, though. The standard is that of a reasonable officer in that situation. 
So it's an objective standard. So if a officer subjectively fears for their life, but a reasonable officer in that situation would not have so perceived the threat, then the officer is not legally justified in using deadly force. What we see in these cases when an officer uh, takes the stand in their own defense at trial, even when the prosecution has put on other officers, prosecutions put on expert testimony to say that in this situation, a reasonable officer would not have perceived the threat. Even when that happens, once the officer takes the stand and testifies that they only shot because they, they were scared and feared for their life, uh, juries are just very reluctant to second-guess the split-second life-or-death decisions of police officers in these potentially violent street encounters. And we see time and time again in that scenario, the officer is just not convicted. Hmm. So what did you think uh, as you were listening to Mike Freeman yesterday lay out these charges against Muhammad Noor? Well, what I thought was interesting was, you know, typically a prosecutor is not going to bring a case that they can't win. In other words, that they can't obtain a conviction either through a guilty plea or a plea bargain. And that's for any kind of criminal case. And that's especially true in these police shooting cases. Just in the last few months, we've heard prosecutors across the country say, well, they're not bringing cases because they don't think they can get a conviction at trial. They're just not going to do it. And what I saw yesterday with Mr. Freeman is that he is very well aware that the, uh, the odds are against him that it's going to be very difficult to get a conviction in this case, but he's bringing the case forward. He's charging Officer Knorr because he thinks it's the just thing to do. He thinks that a crime has been committed, and uh, he, he may well be out of a job as a result of whatever happens here. We, we, you know, I'm not in the business of guessing what a jury is going to do or what the outcome of any criminal case is going to be. I learned a long time ago when I was a trial lawyer that that's just a dangerous thing to predict what the outcome of a criminal case is likely going to be, especially in a high-profile case such as this. But, but the thing that struck me yesterday in watching that press conference was that he is very well aware of um, the difficulty in this case, and his office has actually gone to great lengths to look at the other cases across the country where convictions have been obtained, either through guilty pleas or through uh, jury trials. Um, and what are the factors? What is it about uh, a case that leads to a conviction or a non-conviction is the end result? Um, and so I, I think that uh, they put a lot of time into it, and I think they know they've got uh, a difficult uh, job ahead of them. As we've heard through this hour, there is a, a racial factor in this case. Uh, a white woman was killed by a black officer. There's been some conversation here in the Twin Cities about whether that makes it more likely that prosecutors will get a conviction. Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, again, we're dealing with a small sample, but I can tell you this, that of the 32 officers who's, who've been convicted after being charged with murder or manslaughter, convicted on some charge mm -hmm. uh, since 2005, 12% uh, of those officers were black. I can also tell you that in the 41 cases that ended in a non-conviction, 17% of those officers are black. And when I look at all 85 cases, including the 12 that are still pending, 15% uh, of the officers uh, were black. So it's it's really difficult. And, and, and by the way, with the, the four cases where officers were convicted and they were African-American officers, two of those cases involved um, uh, uh, victims who were African-Americans and two of the cases the victims were not African-Americans. Hmm. So we're dealing with outliers. We're dealing with a small sample. I can't tell you anything in terms of statistical um, significance or, or inferential statistics. Uh, but I, I think that with, with police officers being charged, I, I, I really don't think that race comes into play in these cases to the extent that it comes into play with the race of the victim. But 
That being said, you can't take race out of the equation. Race, race is omnipresent in these, in these uh, cases. Hmm. Um, I don't know how familiar you are with the details of this case. Um, you know, the, the police showed up to uh, investigate uh, the call that the, the eventual victim ended up making. Uh, I just wonder if that seems unusual in your experience. Well, it seems unusual in my experience, and, and remember, I, I was a police officer for several years, uh, a long time ago now, um, but in the mid to late 1980s, I was a police officer before I went to law school and before I later earned a, you know, a PhD and became a professor. Um, what, what strikes me as very uh, odd in this case is that the officers are sitting in their cruiser as they're in this alleyway, and they've unholstered their uh, sidearms and are holding their guns in their hand. That to me, seems very, very odd. I don't understand that. So I, I find that to be a very strange scenario, and I also find it to be a very strange scenario that one officer shoots across his partner as he's sitting in the front seat of the, the police cruiser. The, the facts are just very bizarre. It really doesn't add up. It raises all kinds of questions about their training, what their mindset was. Um, if they thought they were going to be ambushed, why were they there? Um, had they backed themselves into a spot that they, they were scared? Why were they scared? Uh, uh, why did one of them shoot, but the other one didn't? The other officer not shooting his firearm suggests that he did not perceive the threat in the same way that Officer Nord did. And, and those are going to be interesting factors that come to play if this actually goes to trial. Well, Philip Stinson, thanks so much. I'm sorry we had trouble hooking you up there. Uh, I hope you'll come back as this case progresses and we can talk more. Oh, I'd love to. Philip Stinson is an associate professor of criminology at Bowling Green State University in Ohio. That concludes this episode of the Police Integrity Loss Podcast. It originally aired live on Minnesota Public Radio on March 21st, 2018. My thanks to Mike Mulcahy, Julie Sippel, and Mark Ryder. Support for the Police Integrity Loss Podcast was provided by the Wallace Action Fund of Tides Foundation on the recommendation of Mr. Randall Wallace. My name is Phil Stenson, and I'm an Associate Professor of Criminal Justice at Bowling Green State University in Bowling Green, Ohio. For more information on my research, please go to www.bgsu.edu slash police integrity lost.